Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Fed's fine line, J-Pow to justify low rates while upgrading growth forecasts. Pandemic passed, the EU's answer to restoring travel is announced, and Expedia's expectations, the company's CEO on post-pandemic vacationing. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome to all our first movers around the globe as always and happy St. Patrick's Day too to all who celebrate it. It also happens to be Jay Powell's day for global investors too. The question is, will they be celebrating or commiserating when the Federal Reserve Chair speaks following the US Central Bank's latest policy statement? All eyes on the so-called dot plot, which forecasts when voting members think interest rates should rise. The message from the bond markets has been it should be sooner than 2024, which up to now seems to be the average Fed thinking. Investors are continuing to predict stronger growth, supported by stimulus and bold vaccine delivery. And that's what's pushing 10-year bond yields higher around the world into fresh 13-month highs in the United States. That, in turn, is pressuring the rate-sensitive tech sector, and it continues to do so. Take a look. At the Nasdaq futures, little St. Patrick's Day green on the screen there, pre-market, adding to the losses that we saw yesterday. The Dow falling, in fact, for the first time in seven sessions. The Fed anticipation also meant to have subdued Asia session today as well on the eve of the first face-to-face U.S.-China talks of the Biden era. Virtual, of course. Tough words already from U.S. officials over Beijing's behavior at home and abroad. More on that in just a moment. But first, let's kick off our drivers with the Fed's fine line. Christine Romans joins me now. A fine line or lots of bonds to balls to juggle, I think, not bonds. Christine Romans, great to have you with us. That was a Freudian slip there. (laughs) Higher growth, two plus million vaccines being delivered on a daily basis. Growth forecasts upgraded. Does it justify zero rates and monster QE endlessly for the Fed? for years. And this is a consequential meeting, the most consequential meeting I've seen in a couple of years, really, for the Fed. Don't you think for this Fed chief, mm-hmm. he will have to be very careful and very forthright with what he is saying here. I think you're going to hear from him that he is still laser focused on the job situation. You've got growth forecasts out there of six, seven, even eight percent for the U.S. economy this year, not Fed growth forecast, but from private economists. Yet we have a jobs hole of nine and a half million jobs. And we've heard from the Fed chief. We've also heard from the Treasury secretary about these concerns about permanent scarring in the labor market. So how will he weigh the damage that must be uh, that must be repaired with the risk of overheating? And, And I think what you'll hear is this is a Fed chief who knows that there is a hypothetical risk of inflation down the road, but there is a more real actually happening right now risk of people falling behind in this labor market. And we know that they have talked a lot about trying to repair that rift here. Still, this bond market wants to have a little taper tantrum, doesn't it? It really wants to be worried 
about when all of this, uh, these low rates and these huge, uh, these huge bond purchases are, are going to end. And he'll have to be very diplomatic in appeasing those taper tantrum uh, bond folks, but also being very clear that we are still in the thick of a crisis here, don't you think? Yeah, we were just showing the 10-year bond yield there at 167 this morning, too. So it's certainly testing the view that, and I agree with you, that Jay Powell will present today, and that is we can afford to be patient. There is still a lot of work to be done. The big risk, perhaps, here is that dot plot that I mentioned shows at least some of these voting members starting to say, look, we do think that these rate rises have to happen perhaps into 2023, perhaps even as early as the front end of 2023 into 2022. And that will spook the market because it kind of agrees with what the market's pushing for here as well. You know, those rates are so low. I, I would I would caution everyone to remember. Right. I mean, they're zero, right? I mean, will uh, higher rates, nudging up higher rates, is that something that's going to, to kill an economic recovery if you have a true economic recovery post this uh, health care crisis and you've got an administration that wants to tackle infrastructure, wants to tackle income inequality, wants to tackle getting money into the hands and pockets of, of low-income Americans with some real structural and legacy-building kind of changes to the American economy. I mean, is going up a little tiny bit from here a, a quarter earlier than they thought, is, th- is that enough to kill a bull market in stocks and, and and spark a big move in, in the bond market? I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, this is the big question that people are going to be asking. You know, and you go back to, say, 2018, the last time we had, right, we had concerns about those higher interest rates. Weren't they higher than they are here today anyway? Mm. And you still had an economy that went just fine until the COVID crisis, and, and you uh, you didn't have those higher rates signaling some big, you know, flash of inflation or anything by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, we want our cake and eat it. Investors want the cake (laughs) and eat it. Bond deals have tripled, let's be clear, in the last, what, year and a bit. But they're still at 1.67%. Let's remember, it's one point. I know. It's it's the near-term move, but it's also the level. That's the funny thing about markets and economics, right? You can focus on the year to, near-term move and get really freaked out, but then you put it in some perspective and it's like, okay, come on, that's 1.673%. Historically, yes. very low interest rates here. Christy Roberts, thank you for that and being told to move on. <laughs> I could talk to you for hours. All right. The European Union. Look, I really am moving on. The European Union says it will issue COVID certificates to allow virus-free passengers to travel. The digital green pass will allow tourists to move across borders inside the EU without the need to quarantine and test. Fred Plyken joins us now. Fred, it's expansive. Talk us through the exact details on this. What will this certificate contain? Yeah, and it's, and it's very important for the European Union. Of course, the free movement of people is really one of the cornerstones of, of the European Union. But then also, of course, looking forward to the summer season and many people finally wanting to get on the road and travel again in Europe. So this is certainly something that a lot of people here on the continent have been looking forward to, uh, to, to hearing the details of how this is going to be. As you've uh, mentioned, Julia, uh, they call this a green certificate. And essentially, some people are saying it's something like a vaccination passport, so that people who have received vaccines against COVID-19 are going to have essentially a certificate with a QR code that then says, if authorities want to know, that they have indeed received a vaccine. But it's not only people who have received a vaccine uh, who are going to be eligible for this. It's also going to be people who have a very recent negative PCR test. That is also something that can be put into your vaccination passport. But then also people, and this is quite important, who have actually already had COVID-19 and therefore have antibodies and, of course, also have an antibody test. So those are all the ways uh, that people who can uh, are eligible can then get this 
green certificate to then be able to travel more freely around the European Union. There was a press conference I actually think is still going on uh, in the EU Commission with uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the EU Commission, and she says she wants to have all of this ready by summer for the summer travel season. And that, of course, is very important for many Europeans who want to travel. But, of course, something that we've been talking about a lot, also the tourism industry here on the continent, which has really been suffering some 30 million people who are employed in that industry, will also want things to get back on track. There is still a process, of course, within the European Union to make sure that this proposal that was introduced today, that that is going to be approved by the member states. There are a few differences, especially the ones uh, that want tourism to come back as fast as possible. Uh, Countries like Greece, Spain, and Portugal, they want to get this moving uh, as soon as possible. Whereas countries like Germany, they still have a few questions. Like, for instance, what about people who right now just can't get a vaccine yet? Because, of course, we've heard all about these bottlenecks and actually with the uh, vaccine supply here in Europe. And then what about people who don't want to get a vaccine? That's also something that the member states will want to discuss as well. So that's coming up. But right now, the target time to have it ready is the summer holidays. Of course, very important news for a lot of folks here on the continent, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. And then to your exact point, this is not trying to create a two-tier system of people with those who've had vaccines and those that haven't, because it's a comprehensive COVID certificate, a snapshot of where you are right now, be it antibodies, testing or a vaccine. Fred Pleitgen, thank you so much for that. And exactly as Fred said, for more on the travel pass and what it means for countries reliant on tourism, stay with First Move because we'll be speaking to the Prime Minister of Greece later this hour. He was the one that pushed way back in January to get this set up. All right, now to South Korea and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken voicing strong criticism of China. China uh, is using coercion and aggression to systematically erode autonomy in, in Hong Kong, undercut democracy in Taiwan, abuse human rights in Xinjiang and Tibet, and assert maritime claims to the South China Sea that violate international law. Ivan Watson joins us now live from Hong Kong. Ivan, setting a very stern and strong tone there, it seems, with regard to China and, of course, sanctioning 24 Chinese and Hong Kong officials for their behaviour as relates to uh, Hong Kong as they do it. That's right. And it's setting up this strange situation where we could have tit-for-tat punishments coming between Beijing and Washington as diplomats, including Antony Blinken, from both countries are set to meet uh, in just a day in Alaska uh, with this kind of ratcheting up of tensions here around Hong Kong. Now, the Beijing, uh, quite understandably, naturally, uh, rejecting the sanctions against these 24 individuals, uh, saying this is a grave mistake. This is an example of the U.S. interfering in Hong Kong and China's internal affairs and vowing countermeasures, which we have not quite seen yet. So so expect that sometime uh, in the coming days. There are a whole host of areas that you heard Blinken mention that there are disagreements between Washington and Beijing. Uh, Despite that, uh, you have the Chinese foreign ministry saying that that they hope that both sides can uh, come meet each other halfway at this upcoming meeting in Alaska and, and try to put U.S. and Chinese relations on a better track after the, the real disruption of ties uh, in the f- final months of the Trump administration. You maintain 
diplomatic relations here, despite the, the comments and the reactions. What specifically did the foreign minister have to say, Ivan? Right. Well, there, there's actually a whole host of, of, of criticisms coming from Beijing towards the U.S. in response to these themes that, that Antony Blinken and the U.S. Secretary of Defense, who's been traveling with him, have been making kind of accusations against China. Uh, and some of the harshest criticism we've heard coming from the Chinese foreign ministry have been directed against Japan because on the first stop of his trip, uh, Blinken issued a joint statement with his Japanese counterpart in Tokyo, and it really had a lot of criticism of Chinese, China's human rights record, about aggressive moves towards Taiwan, uh, claims towards the South China Sea and contested islands in, in the East Sea. Uh, the Chinese foreign ministry actually called Japan, said it was behaving like a, a vassal state to the U.S. Take a listen to what else he had to say. We strongly urge the U.S. and Japan to immediately stop interfering in China's internal affairs, immediately stop forming small cliques targeting China, and immediately stop harming the peace and stability of the region. China will implement all necessary measures to resolutely safeguard its interests of sovereignty, security, and development. Biden is following through on his threat, Julia, that he was going to assemble U.S. allies to challenge China. He's done that with Japan in South Korea now and last week with a, a virtual summit of the heads of state of India, Australia and Japan. So Beijing has a new, much more sophisticated challenge potentially to deal with. And reacting to it clearly. Ivan, great point. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show today, as always, with your context. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. America is in mourning again after eight people were killed in shootings at three massage parlors in the metro area of Atlanta, Georgia, on Tuesday. A 21-year-old man has been arrested. Police say he's believed to be responsible for all three attacks. They're still trying to establish a motive. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports that six of the eight victims were Asian-American. U.S. intelligence believes that North Korea could be preparing its first weapons test since President Joe Biden took office. Regional experts say some kind of provocation from Pyongyang would come as no surprise. But American officials are on alert, with top members of the Biden administration currently holding meetings in the region. All right, so to come on First Move, the EU plans to introduce COVID passports. I speak to the Greek Prime Minister about whether it's enough to save the crucial summer season. And what does the industry make of the travel pass idea, the Expedia CEO, on whether it's good for business and why he's already confident about a post-pandemic travel boom? That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where tech stocks are on track to open sharply lower this morning. No mystery why. It all comes back, perhaps, to the bond market. Ten-year yields pushing higher once again today, ahead of the latest Fed policy statement and Jay Powell's news conference. Powell insisting in recent weeks that while the Fed's watching, it's not concerned by rising yields, seeing it as a positive reaction to higher growth expectations. Market wants to know, though, if uh, he's still patient, Powell, and whether Fed officials see rates moving higher sooner than they'd initially expected. Joining us now, Kate Moore, the head of thematic strategy for the BlackRock Global Allocation Team. Kate, fantastic to have you on the show. Let's start with yeah, Jim Powell and the here. Federal Reserve. Great to have you. Um, do investors have anything to fear from the Fed in 2021 in your mind? 
I don't think there's anything to fear. I mean, Julia, we're in a great environment right now. It's so wonderful to be able to even say that after 12 months of, of real significant challenge where we're seeing the economy restart, uh, corporate earnings continue to improve even without like a full restart in the economy. And then of course, these waves of fiscal stimulus that are supporting consumers of all income cohorts, and I think really buoying confidence. So we have a lot of tailwinds, I think, to markets, even as the Fed thinks about readjusting policy in a more normal environment towards the back half of this year. So you're saying that stock markets can and will cope even if bond market yields push higher. Yeah, I believe so. You know, one of the things that I watch a lot, Julia, is how analysts are upgrading their expectations, both for earnings growth and as well for sales growth. And in both cases, we're seeing significant upward revisions across all sectors, not just in the U.S., but globally. I mean, this is a real sign that not just are we recovering from last year, but it's a recognition on the part of the analysts that companies were incredibly resilient in some very challenging economic environment and uh, we've seen companies really think hard and long about how they control their costs, what they do in terms of hiring and capital expenditure, and you know, really modify their business models to, to be resilient through all parts of the business cycle. I mean, there's a lot of fundamental things to be excited about at this point in time. I'm buying it. You used a crucial word there as well in the beginning, and it wasn't recovery. It was restart. Just explain the yeah. difference and what that means for your portfolio, because we are seeing people getting back into cyclical stocks like financials and energy. How far are you pushing that cyclical trade? Yeah, Julia, this is a different environment and a different cycle than we've ever had before. Right. Because this was de this was caused by a significant health crisis and a you know, stop in overall activity as the world grappled with that. Um, I think when we talk about restart, we're really talking about a return to normal activity, not a repair that needs to be made, let's say, to the banking system or to consumer balance sheets. And so as a result, when people feel comfortable gathering in person and returning to normal activity, we're going to see a much sharper return to the pre-pandemic activity uh, than we would have seen it a return to kind of a pre-recessionary activity if it was a traditional balance sheet or liquidity issue. And you know, we have like huge pent up demand, I think, across all consumer segments for consumption of services and even indeed consumption of goods for businesses in terms of returning back to normal activity. And all of these engines are going to be firing concurrently over coming quarters. So I think there's a lot of reason to be kind of excited. Um, the one thing I would also note is that, you know, we are in a policy environment, both on the fiscal and monetary side, that's incredibly accommodative, just as this demand is picking up. So we're going to see, I think, overshoot consensus growth expectations over coming quarters. And this is a crucial part of this. And we're sort of seeing that indigestion going on in the tech sector. And I mentioned it in the introduction to you. Should this restart really be a problem for the tech sector and some of the, the sort of strongest pandemic winners? Because, yes, our behavior shifted, but we don't really know to what extent that shift is a permanent shift or, or whether we will retrace. Surely it shouldn't be such a huge problem for the tech sector. Is now the time to be to be taking profits? 
Yeah, I mean, Julia, this is an important point. I think what we've seen over the last weeks and indeed for a good portion of 2021 was a rotation in terms of positioning. You know, many folks and investors across of all stripes and institutional and individual investors, you know, had not been aggressively owning cyclical parts of the market. I'm thinking about industrials and energy and banks. Um, But as rates rose, you know, particularly over the last couple of weeks, there was a significant rotation in people's portfolios. That doesn't mean the strong, sustained earnings growth in the tech sector is going away. It was, you know, really just sort of a resettling of positions. I'm really constructive on technology investing, both within that sector and technology-enabled companies across a variety of sectors, uh, not just for 2021 uh, and into 2022. I think many of these companies have the business models um, and are accessing the types of demand and activity in a sustainable way that will lead them to be the leaders for years to come. So I'm looking at some of these opportunities at weakness and have been adding a little bit and nibbling a little bit more in my portfolio to my high conviction names. What about things like software, which we've seen a Mm. dramatic acceleration in? I guess the other one, and we don't talk about this enough on this show, and I I will going forward, is security, cybersecurity in light of particularly the SolarWinds hack. I think it's something that has been growing quite dramatically for the last 12 months, and I've been seeing indications that it will continue to accelerate. How do you feel about this sector specifically, Kate? Yeah, uh, security software is one of my highest conviction medium-term calls. I've owned a lot of these stocks since the beginning of, of 2020, or I would even say towards the end of 2019, I, I put this trade on. And, you know, at first it was just an increased spend as companies thought about security software and the potential for cyber attacks. And then, of course, remote working. BlackRock had, you know, 17,000 employees all working remotely throughout the course of 2020. And investment in software and systems that make that work secure were incredibly important. And then, of course, as Julia just mentioned, solar winds. We see a big attack on a number of different important government and non-governmental institutions. And what we've heard from all chief investment officers and Mm. chief technology officers is that software spending and security is their number one priority. So I see this as a very important secular theme. And even when we see some weakness, uh, as we were mentioning, as a sort of this rotation and indigestion from the rate side, I see this as an opportunity to add to those names. Yeah, fits. Kate, brilliant to get your insights uh, as always. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Kate Moore, Head of Thematic Strategy for the BlackRock Global Allocation Team. Great to have you with us. All right, stay with First Move because we've got the Greek Prime Minister with us next. The EU announcing plans for a COVID passport or certification that will allow travel within the bloc. The certificate would exempt its holders from restrictions such as quarantine when traveling and could be a lifeline for countries that are banking on tourism coming back this summer. One of those nations is Greece. One fifth of the country's GDP comes from tourism. Joining us now is Kyriakos Mitsotakis. He's the Prime Minister of Greece. Prime Minister, wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. You, if I remember correctly, were the first EU leader way back in January to call for this kind of certification. And if I remember correctly, too, you received some pushback from some of the largest nations in the EU. How do you feel about this proposal today? 
That is correct, uh, Julia. I was the first to raise the issue of a digital green certificate uh, back uh, uh, in the middle of January. When it was absolutely clear to me that uh, at some point, uh, you know, come uh, spring or summer, uh, Europeans will feel the real need to travel and we need to make it as easy for them to travel as possible. Uh, at the time, there was some pushback indeed, but I'm very happy that today the Commission officially adopted this idea and has put forward its proposal for a digital green certificate, which will significantly facilitate travel, something which, of course, is very important for a country such as Greece, which is very dependent uh, on, uh, on tourism. What the digital green certificate is, is very simple. It's a simple digital proof, uh, either that you have been vaccinated uh, or that you have a negative test result or that you have recovered from uh, COVID. Uh, with such a certificate, you will be allowed to enter uh, a country such as Greece without any quarantines and without any additional testing at the borders. So as more people get vaccinated, uh, I expect um, uh, this digital green uh, passport to become standard in travel. Uh, and I do expect that it will allow us to safely open for uh, the summer holidays. We intend to start our summer season officially uh, around May 15th. Uh, and uh, as we expect uh, many more people within the EU to get vaccinated within the second quarter, uh, I also expect uh, travel during the summer to pick up significantly. So yes, I'm very satisfied personally uh, that this proposal has been adopted by the Commission and has been in principle accepted by all the large uh, EU member states. How significantly a pickup are you expecting and how will this facilitate? Because I know you've already had to take steps on your own. You've signed an agreement with Israel already, one of the leaders of pushing out vaccines. You're also working on agreements, I believe, with the UK and with Serbia, who are also pushing ahead with vaccines. These are fantastic steps. But should you really be having to do this alone, Prime Minister? Well, look, most of our tourism comes uh, within the EU. So it is very, very important to ensure that for travelers within the uh, EU that they will uh, be able to travel uh, as easily uh, as possible and without any additional uh, restrictions. Now, when it comes to uh, travel from outside the uh, EU, uh, of course, we're open to put in place a very, very similar arrangement. We are indeed, as you pointed out, starting with Israel because Israel has vaccinated more than 50% of its population and Greece is a very popular um, uh, destination for Israeli tourists. So we essentially intend to replicate this arrangement uh, with other countries that are not uh, members of the EU. And I expect this, Julia, to be the standard um, sort of um, um, uh, tool that we will use in order to facilitate uh, travel. Uh, as you pointed out, um, we are very dependent on tourism. We did manage last year to open up safely. We received a fraction of the tourists that we would normally receive. And we do uh, expect a much better tourism season um, uh, this year. Uh, apart from the digital green certificate, we will do everything within our power to make sure that visitors come to Greece uh, in the most uh, uh, safe um, way. So we have in place all the necessary protocols to ensure that they will get the full uh, Greek uh, experience without uh, any, any real compromises, but with always putting their safety as our absolute priority. If we did it last year, we will certainly do it much better this year now that we have all these additional tools at our disposal. And I know your own uh, vaccination certification procedure as well is all digitized as well because I've, I've seen evidence of it. Can you address one of the criticisms and the concerns, I think, for your own people, which is that as a result of the tourism that you saw last year, you saw a second wave of infections and something that you'd managed to handle before that incredibly well. What's the risk that you see a further surge in, in COVID cases, even with the precautions that you're putting in place? 
Look, uh, all European countries have seen a second, a third. Some European countries are already in their fourth uh, uh, wave. We are seeing uh, a surge uh, uh, right now uh, as we speak, which is uh, uh, the equivalent of the third wave that many European countries um, uh, saw a couple of months ago. But, uh, Julia, as more people get vaccinated, uh, I expect that we will be able to cope uh, with COVID much more effectively. Uh, we uh, are proceeding, uh, I would almost say, ahead of schedule. We're one of the best uh, countries within the EU when it comes to our vaccination uh, pace. And we know that uh, once we reach the milestone, which we expect to reach by the end of May, April, which is that we will have vaccinated everyone above uh, 60 with at least one shot and also everyone with serious underlying conditions. Uh, once we reach that point, we take a lot of pressure um, uh, from our hospitals. So that is the point when we can uh, anticipate uh, a return to normal activities. It's essentially what is happening in Israel uh, today. COVID is still present. People still um, uh, um, do get sick, but uh, their healthcare system is able to cope with it without any significant difficulties. So this is uh, where I think we will be uh, in a couple of months. Uh, and this is, I think, how we will be able to deal with COVID um, uh, um, uh, at least for, uh, for the next six to 12 months. They also managed to ensure supplies, which is something that the EU's clearly struggled with. Um, even as you're ready and set up when those supplies come in, you've been using Pfizer, I believe, and AstraZeneca's vaccine. And in light of some of the recent concerns, I saw that Greece didn't suspend the use of AstraZeneca amid sort of confusing responses, I think, from various different nations, including the regulators in Europe. What's your view on well, the handling well, of this? Uh, well, uh, first of all, let me, let me point out that, of course, uh, Europe is probably a couple of months behind uh, uh, the mm. U.S. and the U.K. in terms of its vaccination uh, pace. Uh, there were clear benefits in terms of purchasing vaccines at the European level, especially for medium-sized countries such as Greece. But, of course, there were also delays that were, I think, openly acknowledged uh, by the Commission. Uh, allow me to point out that at the level of the regulator, the European regulator, there is no confusion whatsoever. The EMA has been very, very clear uh, in telling us that the benefits uh, of the AstraZeneca vaccine clearly outweigh the potential costs. And that is why Greece was one of the few countries that went against the trend. And we are currently continuing uh, with our AstraZeneca vaccination um, program. Uh, and uh, we uh, expect uh, you know, a decision by the EMA to be taken uh, tomorrow. If the EMA tells us that we need to suspend the program, of course, we will suspend it immediately. But frankly, Julia, I don't understand to the extent that all European countries have uh, trusted the EMA so far with authorizing the AstraZeneca vaccine. I don't understand why decisions have to be taken at the level of individual member states. Of course, every country is responsible um, um, for dealing with this issue uh, in the way it sees uh, most, uh, uh, most suitable. Uh, but we uh, have aligned ourselves fully with uh, EMA recommendations. And until further notice, we will continue with our AstraZeneca vaccination program. Forgive me, and that was where I was meaning to talk about the confusion between the response from EU states, the various responses from EU states, and obviously differing in that regard. Um, Prime Minister, I want to talk to you about Greece because uh, what I hear from, from friends, and I've spent um, many uh, periods of time in, in Greece myself, is that you know people are tired of, of lockdown, they're tired of of handling this virus and they look at the ICU capacity, the intensive care, and they're wondering whether the strategy that you have right now is correct. Can you just respond to the strategy that you have right now to contain the virus and, and the concern perhaps that going forward, the economy is going to be a challenge once again, given the struggles that, that Greece has faced in the past? 
Actually, we need to be honest, everyone is tired uh, in terms of dealing with COVID. And what you uh, see as COVID fatigue uh, across Europe has very, has, you know, uh, common characteristics. Uh, we have essentially uh, restricted economic activity for the past four to five uh, weeks because we anticipated, uh, you know, a third wave, which is currently um, uh, happening in Greece. Had we not taken these measures, things would have been significantly worse. Uh, of course, our hospital system is under stress, but we're still able um, uh, to deal with the problem. Uh, and I'm absolutely certain that had we not taken the steps that we did uh, take um, um, a month ago, uh, we would have faced uh, a much more severe crisis now. Uh, and I do expect uh, this wave to plateau within the next week uh, or 10 days uh, and then start coming down. You know, there's always a similar uh, pattern. At the same time, uh, we need to be smart in terms of letting people um, uh, become active again without compromising our main strategy in terms of containing um, uh, the virus. So that's exactly the balance that we need to strike. How do we let uh, people some degrees of freedom without um, compromising our overall strategy? This is exactly what we're looking at, and we uh, expect to make announcements uh, within the next um, you know, 48 hours. You know, at the same time, what I do need to point out is that we have significantly strengthened our national health care system. We've more than doubled our ICU beds uh, uh, over the past um, uh, year, which uh, was a significant achievement mm. uh, for Greece. And if you look at the overall statistics, the way we've dealt with the pandemic since the very beginning, Greece still ranks as one of the best European countries uh, in terms of deaths per million, which unfortunately is the most gruesome, but the most indicative statistic in terms of how well um, a, a country has dealt uh, with the pandemic. So we will deal with this uh, uh, third wave. I have no doubt about that. And as vaccinations um, will, uh, will increase, we will be able to start um, resuming normal economic activity and we will be open um, uh, for the summer uh, for people to come to Greece safely uh, and enjoy uh, the unique uh, Greek summer uh, in Greece as they, as they have done or as they expect to be, uh, to be doing, especially in these times where people will feel the real need to travel. Um, and we want to make sure that uh, if they choose to travel, they come to Greece and Greece is our number one destination. Oh, my goodness. Don't you worry about that. I was Googling this morning while I was preparing for the interview and just a dreaming, quite frankly. Um, very quickly, you are finding the balance, I think, in one specific place, which is the financial markets. I read this morning that you're set to launch a 30-year bond issue where, you know, given past history, this would be the first time, I believe, since 2008. That is a marker of regaining financial market confidence. And I have about a minute left to talk to you, Prime Minister, but I did want to mention this. Your comments on that. This is vitally important for the country too. Yeah, well, uh, well, well thank you, Julia. Had we, had we spoken uh, you know, a couple of years ago, it would have been mm. inconceivable for Greece to uh, actually launch a 30-year bond. But we did it this year. Uh, it was more than 10 times oversubscribed. Uh, I think we'll be raising around 2.5 billion uh, euros with what we consider to be an attractive interest rate for a 30-year bond. And I think it is uh, a proof that Greece, Greece, is, uh, Greece is back in the sense that we've left the financial crisis behind us for good. The future of the country is extremely promising. I expect rapid growth once the pandemic is over. A lot of investors are looking at Greece as an interesting, very interesting and very appealing investment opportunity. And I think this 30-year bond is just one uh, uh, additional step uh, we take uh, in the direction of leaving you know, uh, our legacy and our past of the past decade uh, behind us once and for good. And fingers crossed for a strong and safe summer season too. Uh, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, the Prime Minister of Greece. So thank you for joining us on the show today. 
All right, coming up after the break. Renewal of the world is coming. So says the CEO of Expedia, who's predicting a roaring post-pandemic travel boom. And he's next. A reminder once again of today's big news, Europe's plans to boost travel by creating a kind of digital health credential certificate. It's a topic of intense debate across the travel industry and one of the leading names in travel and one of the very first to enter the digital space is Expedia. It was once part of Microsoft way back in 1996 in dial-up times. Well, today it has over 20 brands encompassing hotels, vacation homes, car rentals and cruises. It predicts vacation deprivation will soon be replaced by a travel boom. Peter Kern is Expedia's group CEO and he joins us now. We definitely have vacation deprivation, Peter. Great to have you on the show. Clearly the international market and city breaks are a huge part of your business. What do you make of Europe's plans for this certificate? Yeah, well, we'd certainly love to see uh, the EU agree on a plot for that. Uh, I think uh, pent-up demand for travel, obviously, uh, is very high. And uh, increasingly, we hope that uh, between now and the summer, we'll see more of the EU be vaccinated and uh, and tested. And I think people will be dying to get out. And uh, your last guest, I'm sure people would love to get to Greece, as you said you would. And uh, and so, you know, if, if the EU can come up with a plot that works for everybody, I think uh, it would be a great relief for customers and travelers. They would love to get out and go some places. I know I'm allowed to go. I just can't get back into the country, which is uh, the slight problem here. To <laughs> yeah. what extent? Yeah. To yes. what extent is vaccine optimism driving the activity that you're seeing, Peter? Just give us a sense of of what you're seeing. Obviously, some part of this is the United States, but you are such a huge global business. Give us a sense of what you're seeing. Yeah, it's been very predictable. I think as people get vaccines or expect to get vaccines, they start thinking about uh, their future travel very quickly. And uh, and to the extent they have strong belief in it, they they will book travel. We are seeing already in in uh, many parts of the U.S. the the summer is all booked up practically in in popular destinations, uh, and that is clearly a reflection of people's either people having gotten vaccines or people planning to get vaccines. And I think the EU will be, uh, Europe will be very similar to that. And uh, the, the timeline hasn't quite been as fast and people's expectations uh, may be dashed by certain news, et cetera. So it, it moves around uh, depending on, on people's beliefs. But as soon as they believe and are confident that they will have a vaccine, uh, we, owe, we will see travel bookings pick up. And even as you mentioned, you have trouble getting back into the country. Uh, when, when the UK uh, brought out plans for their their path out of the with vaccines and with with opening up uh, we saw we saw bookings rise immediately so you see it as soon as people have confidence that uh, that they can go someplace that goes to your point about pent-up demand being there the moment the flexibility arrives people will make use of it you also wrote an op-ed for a fortune magazine sort of debunking some of the myths that city city living is over and that people won't return to the cities and, and things have now changed. Just expand on your views on this. Sure. You believe history tells us that people will come back. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, a pandemic like this seems to have pushed everybody to make a lot of predictions about the future yeah. being different than we've ever known it. And uh, I think we, you know, the world has been through a lot of a lot of disasters, a lot of wars, a variety of things, and cities, and and uh, you know, Rome's been through a couple thousand years of it, and Rome's not going anywhere. And I think we'll all be going back to our favorite city destinations. Uh, lakes and mountains and beaches are great, but uh, there's a reason so many people went to Paris and Rome and Shanghai and New York and London and and 
I don't see that ending anytime soon. So I don't know about you. I'm sure we'd all have a beach vacation, but, uh, but I'd love to get back to all of those places. And, uh, and I think the world will come back. So I think people have just been too keen to say uh, the pandemic has changed everything. And I think the pandemic has changed many things, but not the desire to travel to great destinations around the globe. I can tell you I've never been so excited at the prospect of getting on a plane in my life, quite frankly, yeah, never mind exactly. seeing, seeing the people that I love. You know, it's challenging for a, a travel business in a pandemic to see growth at any part of your business. But I saw some recent comments that you made about um, Verbo, which is the Airbnb competitor. So people going and renting a home somewhere in an enclosed space, effectively, where they're protected. Do you think that strength that you're seeing in that part of the business continues beyond the pandemic? Because it kind of ties to what you were saying about recovery and a return to normality. Is that part of the business remain, will remain key, do you think? Yeah, well, it's a it's an important part of our business. And it's been a great part of our business mm. during COVID. As you say, people feel have felt more comfortable renting a whole home for their family or even for their pod of whatever they were in and uh, and being safe that way. Uh, what it's done is given a lot more people the chance to try renting homes as a vacation alternative. And I think ha they've had great experiences and seen what a great uh, uh, time they can have doing that. So we believe that it is a, a step function in terms of people's experience with it and that therefore they will consider it more frequently as an option for their travel. But rest assured, people will be going back to hotels and resorts. I have zero doubt about that. And I think it will just, uh, you know, between Airbnb and Verbo, uh, we were seeing a growth in alternative accommodations around the world, vacation homes, et cetera. And uh, I think this has just accelerated it and put it on the radar for many more people than might not have otherwise thought about it. Yeah, I definitely want a pool and someone else to save me from my own yeah. cooking, quite frankly. <laughs> yes, and someone to bring you a drink. You know, those <laughs> yeah. are important things. Absolutely. Peter Cohn, the yeah. CEO of Expedia Group, thank you for joining us on the show and come back soon, please. Much to discuss as always. Thank yeah. you. All right, coming up, an electrifying announcement how Volkswagen is moving its EV strategy into high gear. Our conversation with the CEO next. Take a look at this. Volkswagen stock gaining around 20% since it's unveiled a plan to spend $55 billion on electric vehicles, software development and hybrid power. All by 2025, projects include six battery gigafactories in Europe and a massive expansion of its charging network globally. Volkswagen plans to have more than 38,000 charging points globally by 2025 that CEO Herbert Dies told me will be available for other EVs too. Now, I started by asking him about the positive reaction from investors. Listen in. So I think it's a comprehensive plan where we show that we are um, strong in EVs and also the first uh, market uh, reaction to our new EV products is very positive. We have good order banks. So uh, this is the point where we can demonstrate that our strategy is working. And that seems to be that capital markets also uh, share that view. There's clearly a lot of cheering going on today and investors like the plan that they're seeing. But what do you think is the biggest risk to the rollout of this plan for Volkswagen? Uh, the biggest challenge for us for sure is really to get into software, deep into software. Understanding the car as a device, a computer device, which uh, has to be updated by the week or even by the day through that device, you will get direct contact 
to the customer and which will be a device which will be highly safety critical because at some stage it will drive autonomously you know, and you will be or the company will be the driver of this device. Yeah, and hiring the tech engineers. Attracting the right people is probably even not the biggest constraint. The biggest constraint is really integrating 15, 20 different cultures, uh, companies, integrating new people uh, from all <laughs> over the world, uh, giving an identity and then uh, focusing on, on the delivery days and, and, and the launch dates. But you're smiling as you say it, so I know you're excited. Um, final question, UBS put out a report saying actually next year you could be matching the sales for Tesla. By 2025, you could be outstripping them by several hundred thousand cars. Is today's announcement the beginning of Volkswagen disrupting the disruptor? And I mean disrupting Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big word, and uh, and you know Tesla is not only about uh, electric vehicles. Uh, no. Tesla is also very <laughs> strong in software. They they really run the car as a device. They are making good progress on the autonomous thing. Uh, but yes, we are probably <laughs> now um, we are we are going to challenge Tesla. Yeah. yeah. It was a nice conversation. All right, let's take a look at the markets. No luck of the Irish for tech stocks this St. Patrick's Day. The Nasdaq opening lower by 1%. As you can see, this as U.S. 10-year bond yields hit 13-month highs ahead of today's Federal Reserve statement. And, of course, the press are too. All eyes on that. Cyclicals like financials and energy, as Kate Moore was discussing, seeing early session gains. These are the stocks that will do well as economies strengthen. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages later. Search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow and connect the world with Becky Anderson. Who's next? When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.